please turn to John chapter 8. We've been in a series in the first half of the book of John called Jesus is Reality. And after Easter, we'll study the second half of John in a series that we are calling Life with God. Today, we are in John 8, and so I need to make some prefatory comments on this and uh, a couple of disclaimers. Okay? A couple prefatory comments and a couple of disclaimers. If you turn to John 8, you will notice there's an actual a disclaimer in your Bible. So remember how you, you guys give me stuff all the time for like doing disclaimers before sermons? It's in the Bible. So you actually have a physical disclaimer before John 8. It reads something like this. Early manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses, holy or in part, after John 7:36, John 21:25, Luke 21:38 or Luke 24:53, okay? Okay. Now what does that mean? It means this. It means that this account that we have here in John 8 is absent from all Greek, all major Greek manuscripts. Though we do have record of this account going around the world or wherever the gospel of Jesus was spread as early as A.D. 60 to 130. And the manuscripts that we do have that contain John chapter uh, John 8, 1 through 11, where, where we do have fragments or in part, we have it scattered. They're in different places in John. This account is sometimes found here, sometimes found towards the end of John. It's even found in several places in Luke's gospel. That's what this disclaimer means when it says that. I had uh, trouble, to be honest, um, of keeping this John 8 in our series. It wasn't in the original draft of the series that I've written up. I didn't put it in there. But later on, um, after maybe I think our first week in John, I added it. And the reason why I added it to here, and the reason why I think it's right to preach on and teach on, is that the spiritual realities talked about here in John 8 are reiterated throughout the New Testament, and the doctrines and truths found here are retold and reinforced over and over again. Which is to say, what we read in John chapter 8 right here, and what we learn here doctrinally has nothing new in it or out of the ordinary. It's not weird. It's right in line with um, this, the, John's gospel. I would say here it's a, a good place to put it, and we'll talk about that later. But I even think it even fits in the synoptic. It's more of a synoptic gospel story. But like most of the Bible, why I think it's great is that this account is doctrine told in vivid story. This is the doctrine. I think this is the collision of Old Testament and New Testament doctrine in vivid story. And the story we learn more fully, and with story, this story, we learn more fully with more color and more, uh, it, 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 it like penetrates our mind better. We are, um, we are storied people. Like we're people that love story. In the book, Reading the Gospels Wisely, the writer says in his book, story communicates truth most comprehensively and transformatively. And then, right afterward, he likens a story and the story of the Gospels to art, where he quotes the poet Dana uh, Gioia. I don't know how to say his name, sorry. But during his commencement speech at Stanford, he said this, Art addresses us in the fullness of our being, simultaneously speaking to our intellect, emotions, intuition, imagination, memory, and physical senses. There are some truths about life that can be expressed only as stories or songs or images. And that's what we find here. We find a story about what John wrote in John 1.17. He said that the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now I can say that or I can make you feel that with this story. And if I make you feel that, you will never forget it. 
That's what story does. It takes the doctrines and the truths and, and the illustrations of the life of Jesus and makes the doctrine a reality. Now, when I say the law came through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, there's all these like loopholes, how, what, what does it look like, all that stuff, but story seems to fill in all those gaps. Now, most theologians will agree that this account is something that happened and something that Jesus taught, but why is it here? And that's the question of why there's a disclaimer. Why is it here right here? But I believe that we can learn a great deal from it and by God's grace be transformed by it. That's the first disclaimer. The second disclaimer is this teaching is on sexuality. And every single time I teach on sexuality, I tell you that I cannot teach all of it in one teaching. We've been teaching on sexuality in and out throughout the five-year history of our church. Um, We've taught on it through the book of Mark. We've taught it through the book of Genesis. We've taught on it through the book of Proverbs. We've taught on it through our identity series. Almost every book, there is something about sexuality that comes up. So... With that, I want to refer you. Normally what we do is we just put all our teachings online. So there might be questions, and there probably should be questions. I will also be up here afterwards to answer. Not, maybe not to answer, to hear your question. I probably won't be able to answer it, to tell you the truth. All right, everybody cool with that? Disclaimer's done. John 8, let's read and pray. Actually, start in verse 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 53. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him. And he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now. And leave your life of sin. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the scriptures and their way to communicate the truths that we are to live into. I pray that we'd find ourselves in the story. I pray that we'd find ourselves in the Pharisees, that we'd find ourselves in the woman, and that we would find ourselves in front of you, hearing your words and your voice. Would you come across to us this morning? as the God full of grace and truth. And I submit my mind and my heart and my, my feeble knees to you, Lord, and I say, God, just speak to us. We want to hear from you. I can speak to ears, only you can change hearts, God. We all just submit ourselves under the power and authority of the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, let me start with this. Uh, WWJD, ever heard of that? WWJD. J.D. Now, if you grew up in youth group or you were around the church culture in the 90s, 
you know exactly what this means. We even had bracelets. You guys remember bra- the bracelets? I think Kanye was wearing one like a couple years ago, like ironically, I think, though. Um, this was a huge campaign, like worldwide campaign. If you, if you were in the church and you didn't wear a WWJ bracelet, I think you're probably cooler now for saying, yeah, I never, like not ever getting a tattoo. It's like, yeah, I never got a tattoo. Um, like everyone wore them. Everyone did. And the campaign was, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And the whole campaign was this. I want, you were, you were to wear this thing on your wrist, and I wish I had one, but I don't. Um, does anyone here have one right now? On? No, don't raise your hand. I don't know what I would do. Just don't. Just, just do this. Just keep your hand in your pocket. Supposed to wear one on your wrist, and they're supposed to remind you throughout the day, everything you're doing, what would Jesus do? Every time you're tempted to sin, you're like, oh, no, look. <laughs> what would Jesus do? It was like this thing that would help you make all your decisions. It would guide you in life. Like you, you have to close a huge deal. Like, well, what would Jesus do right now? Now, the intentions were good. The biggest problem with the campaign is that you were turning Jesus into you. That's subtle, creepy even, but that's what you were doing. It's, it was theologically, I think, just wrong. You, whatever you thought best, what was best in the situation was automatically what Jesus thought was best in the situation. It's like, what would Jesus do? And what, and you, how would, what, what does that even mean? Like, I, like I, Jesus would, like, eat, like, kale or, like, arugula. I don't kale probably I don't want kale like what would I it just it places you in a place of you making decisions for Jesus and what happened was and I think that there's some undercurrent of repercussions there even now and people that went to youth group then but I don't want to get into that but we detached Jesus from the Jesus of the scriptures and we became our own Jesus our own little gods in a sense it's subtle but there were very very huge theological implications here's the deal we have what Jesus did. We don't have to ask questions. What we, we have what he did. We have Jesus' thoughts on very important subjects and complex pastoral and cultural questions. We have it. We have one of the most powerful stories right here with the woman caught in adultery. In, in adultery. So we don't have to ask, how would Jesus treat sexually shamed and marginalized people? WWJD. We don't have to ask that We don't have to ask it because we have what he did. And we have it right here. And in our text, we will see both radical inclusion and transformation of a human life. And so, to set the scene a little bit, Jesus is in the temple courts teaching. He did this often. He was in the temple courts teaching. People gathered around. The temple courts were a place where people gathered to learn and to debate. They were to engage civically there. This was like a hub for Jewish cultural activity. Jesus was there teaching, engaging, and then the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these were the religious elites of that day. They were actually the enemies of Jesus, if you can believe that. They were the enemies of Jesus. They're trying to cast Jesus into a trap. They're trying to trap him, to accuse him. They're trying to nullify and go do away with his very effective and powerful ministry. So they walk up and they bring a woman. They bring a woman who's caught in adultery. And they bring her to Jesus, and they made her stand in front of the whole group. Did you pick up on that language? That the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group? They brought her up for public shame. And they brought her up, and they made her stand in front of everyone. And they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
It wasn't like this woman committed adultery four months ago. This woman committed adultery last Friday. No, this woman was committing adultery minutes ago, and we caught her in the act, and now here she is. And here are the witnesses who caught her in the act of adultery, and they're standing. She's standing in front of all these people. And they say this, and they appeal to the law. They say, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say, Jesus? Notice the whole public shame thing. It would be as if someone took all your private information and made it public to your community at work or your online community or whatever. Just everyone who follows you, everyone who likes your whatever, everyone who knows you in your online community that might even respect you for what you do. All of a sudden, public shame went out to all of them. We don't have anything necessarily equivalent to the temple courts today. We have an online community, though, or revenge blogs or whatever. And public shame is making a comeback in our day, by the way. Uh, in America, for the last several, um, for the la- last several generations, um, we've been a guilt-driven society. And so the way that I get you to give or whatever else is guilt-driven. The way I get you to serve is guilt. It's all guilt, 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 guilt. But now shame is making a comeback. And shame is making a comeback through social media. There was even a little opinion piece in the Chronicle a couple weeks ago, weeks ago called Twitter's Tango with Shame. Now, it's not like Twitter, the company's tango with shame, but the fact that when we're on Twitter, there's all the shame attached to it. There's shame attached to what, how people will tag you in a post, or, or if you get enough likes, there's shame attached to your online or your, your, your social media presence. Brene Brown, who's a, um, a psychologist um, and a cultural anthropologist, has written some stuff on shame as well. Standing in front of this group, this woman was experiencing public shame. These people knew who she was. They were standing in front of her, and they weren't just like people that knew her. They were leaders in the community. And they were saying that she is caught in the act of adultery, and they appealed to the law. And the law said this. Moses commanded, they said, Moses commanded that we stone. Did you, did you pick up on this too? I didn't pick up on this until actually a lot later after reading the story Well, Moses commanded that we stone such women. Did you get that? Like that weak stone such women. There's, there's a part of what they're saying, whether they believe in it or not, um, that they, they were saying the problem with our society today are these type of women. The problem with our world today are these type of women. The problem with our whatever marriages today are these type of women. These type of sexually immoral people. That's what's contaminating us. That's what's wrong with society. And Moses commanded that we stone such women. We have to get rid of them. We have to blot them off the face of the earth. Let's get rid of them. But here's the thing. This might catch you by surprise. They were right. They were completely right. The law did require sexually immoral people, those who committed adultery, to be killed. Um, You can write this down for yourself and go back later tonight and read it because it's really fun reading. Deuteronomy. (laughs) Chapter 22. Write that down. Leviticus chapter 20. This This is actually in the Jewish Bible, or we call it the Old Testament. If you flip your Bible this way, you will find it in there. Now, why is the law there? Why, why, why was there even a, a commandment? There's one of the Ten Commandments that we, you shall not commit adultery. And why do we have Leviticus 18? Have you ever stumbled upon Leviticus 18 on accident? That's scary land right there. 
all kinds of sexual laws. Now, why is there all this Old Testament law around sexuality? What are they trying to do? What is it trying to do? Well, here's what it's trying to do. Old Testament law around sexuality is trying to honor and get at get God's people back to Genesis 2:25. That's what sexual law is trying to do. When God commands something in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, what he's trying to do is he's trying to bring everyone back, get everyone back into where was this place of true pure intimacy? Where was this place of uh, of 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 true true sexuality? He's trying to get everyone back there. Where we see in, in Genesis chapter 25, where we see God's design for sexuality. Jesus even himself affirms and upholds the biblical tradition of going back and appealing to creation. So when Jesus is asked one of the most hot button sexual, sexuality um, uh, debates in the day, what do you do about divorce? That was the topic of the day. Jesus appealed to creation. This is so important. He appealed to creation. Um, in Matthew chapter 19, let me read to you what he said. He said, haven't you read? They're like, what about divorce, Jesus? And he goes, haven't you read, he replied. Now he's speaking to people who knew the Old Testament. He's speaking to people that lived under the law of God. He said to them, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female, he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united with, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus appeals to Genesis chapter 2. He appeals to the garden of Eden. This happens. Oh, Paul does this. Throughout Scripture, whenever it talks about whatever, sexuality, it always appeals to law, which the law appeals to creation. Jesus would have agreed with the law and the intent of the command. So Jesus would have agreed with the law. He wouldn't have said, the law Moses said we should stone such a woman. He was like, nah, that, that's not really what it says. He would have done that. He would have agreed with it. But here's the irony. And this is the this is the tension in this whole passage of Scripture. Here's the irony. The religious leaders didn't care a lick about God's law. They didn't care about God's word at all. They didn't honor the whole thing. You know what the law states? The law they were quoting states that both the man and the woman should have been killed. But where's the dude? Where's the guy? Where, such women, where's the guy? He didn't run away. They would have said that. They were like, okay, she was caught in the act of adultery, and we tried to get the guy, but he's fast. <laughs> and he ran away. And so we have her, but maybe let's just kill her first and then go find the dude, Jesus. They didn't do that. He said, such women. So she wasn't a person anymore. She wasn't a person. She was a point to be made. They ignored, they didn't, have, they didn't care about the law. They wanted to make a point with her. And they brought her to Jesus, not because they were shocked by her conduct, not because they had concern for her life, or her family's life, or the community's life, and because they were grieved that God's law was being broken. This was not a pastoral call to Jesus. There wasn't this girl caught in the act of adultery, like, Jesus, help us pastor her. And let us, would you help us pastor him? Because they were both, it takes two for adultery to happen. And they were both there, would you help us care for their souls? Not at all. It was a law. It was, let's kill her, such women. Their real motives were to exploit her sin and further their own evil desires. Their true motives were to trap Jesus. They wanted to trap him. They had a religious thing to do. They didn't care at all about her. 
They exploited her. They made her vulnerable. They wanted to destroy her. And as they wanted to destroy her, they wanted to just do a religious thing. Our religious thing to do right now is to destroy Jesus. Look at verse 6. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, what was the trap? What do you mean they were trying to trap Jesus? Now, listen, here's the trap. If Jesus said, let her go. So, here's the woman, caught in adultery. Jesus is like, the law said we should stone such women. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus is like, you know what? Let her go, guys. It's not worth it. This is not the intent. This was let her go. If he would have said that, they would have accused him. They would have accused him of breaking God's law. I mean, a serious command. But that's not why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So Jesus couldn't do that. Now, if Jesus said, stone her, kill her, pick up rocks, kill her, just do it, all of us, come on. He would have nullified his own ministry of forgiveness and a friend of sinners. Everyone, every sinner would have been really afraid of Jesus at that point. It was like, no, if he finds out you're a sinner, he will kill you. Like, don't, don't invite him over anymore and don't want to hang out with him anymore. It would have been gone. That would have been gone. He was known as a friend of sinners. That's what they called him. He's a friend of sinners. That would have been completely gone. And if he would have found her guilty and stoned her, he would have been guilty of breaking Roman law for it was not Jewish leaders' place to perform capital punishment. That was Rome's job. And he was so he's stuck. If I say stone her, I'm under Roman, uh, breaking Roman law, and I've lost all of my grounds of a friend of sinners. Now if I say, you know, it's all good, I'm breaking God's law. But this, isn't this more than a trap? Isn't this, as far as human reason goes, the most profound moral problem which confronts God himself? Isn't this the real, real question that we want to ask God? And the real question is this. How can justice and mercy be harmonized? How can, and she told you, how, remember how I told you this is like the Old Testament and New Testament colliding in a story? How in the world can the law be fulfilled and mercy be granted? I've been reading Exodus this last week. And Exodus is just such a good book. Um, and you get to chapter 20 in Exodus. And in chapter 20 in Exodus are the Ten Commandments. And God gives um, Moses the Ten Commandments. And as he gives him the Ten Commandments, there are these, it's heavy up there. Moses goes up there, God's there. Well, let me just read it to you. After the Ten Commandments are given, this is what happens on, on top of Mount Sinai where Moses is getting the commandments from God. It says this in verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. They, in, in, in Exodus, they were really afraid of God. Like really afraid, like Moses, go up the mountain. He's like, no, God wants us all to come up. No, 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 we're not going. No, God wants all of us in his presence. No, 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 we're not going. You go. And then he, so Moses goes up, gets the tablets of stone, about to come down with them. And then as he's getting these tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, the, the whole mountain is shaking and everyone is hiding in fear. This is the holiness of God, the heaviness of God, the weight of God and God's law. That's what we're supposed to see here. But gets a few chapters later in Exodus 34, when Moses chisels out a new stone t- of, of tablets. These are the second Ten Commandments. It's a long story. He broke the other ones. I don't have time to get into it. Okay? <laughs> Read the story for yourself. He's, a, he, he's getting these new stone tablets and God tells him something. And I want you to see this, because this is, this is sometimes missed. Verse 
I don't know what verse it is. This is chapter 34. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming. Now let's stop here. This is so important. God is about to tell Moses who he is. Himself. Like, I have a name and this is my name. This is so important. This is who I am. He says this. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is God talking. God is saying, I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious. Now you might have your own thoughts about the Old Testament God. Before you have your own thoughts and we ask God, who are you? This is what he would say. I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. You're like, what? You were just like this holy thing on a mountain that everyone's afraid of a second ago. Like there's this tension that rolls through the Old Testament. God holy and heavy and weighty and awful, full of awe, loving, compassionate, gracious. Like you have justice and you have mercy. You have a God who is just and holy and righteous and law-giving. You have a God who is mercy and abounding and love and faithfulness, maintaining his love to thousands. But he does not leave the guilty unpunished. See, the law of the righteous God demands punishment for wrongdoing. That's clear. But if God is merciful and forgiving, how can mercy be exercised when the sword of justice must be enacted? How does this happen? This tension kind of carries and rolls through the Old Testament. Can grace flow without rejecting the holiness of God? See, this isn't just a story. It's a question being asked. How can grace and law kiss? How can justice and mercy coexist in God? That's the real trap. They weren't just trapping him law. This is like, this is the real trap. This is like what we want to ask God. Now what does Jesus do next? Like you do, he starts to write in the dirt. Just, and he just starts to write. And okay, so what is he writing? No, who knows what he's writing? Everyone thinks they know what he's writing though. People think, well, the Ten Commandments were carved with the finger of God. Jesus is God. He's like, Ten Commandments, one. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He'll like circle that one. Thou shalt not like bear false testimony. He's like underline, 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 star asterisk. You know, like he he could he maybe. Some people go no. He's 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 writing Jeremiah seventeen that says those who turn away from you will be written in dust. That's what he's writing. When I was in youth group, I was taught that he's writing the names of the oldest person to the youngest and all their sins. That would have taken a long time, a long time. People would be like um. I'm, I'm bored. I can't take this anymore. I don't even know. Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't, we don't know what he's doing. He could just be breaking tension. He could just, like, go down and so that people aren't looking at the woman or at him. They're looking at what he's writing. They're like, he, could, he just could just be smart and breaking the tension in the room. But when he started to write, look at verse 7. It says, they kept on questioning him. This is the single-mindedness of religiosity. No nuance, no soul care, no pastoral care. It's just, what are you going to do? Are we going to kill her or not? What do we do? The single-mindedness of religiosity. The reason why this is a powerful story, this is a powerful story, because it paints a strong picture of harsh judges 
who have neglected their responsibility to care for the soul of the woman. This woman cannot be written off as defective or told there's no future or hope for her, only condemnation. That cannot happen. See, in the mind of religious leaders, she is disposable. She is a non-person, only a thing to prove their point, only a tool in their theological strategies. So, and this is completely wrong. Jesus sees her as a person, as a human with a soul. And so he stands up after writing on the ground and he says this. This is the statement that we all know. Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again he stoops down to write. Just write some more. Jesus takes the Jewish Bible seriously, the Old Testament. Jesus does not acquit her here and say she's innocent. He doesn't stand up and say, she's all right. She's okay. That's, you know what? This is what she does. It's the way she is. Everyone just stop. Just stop. He doesn't do that. He upholds the law and says, the one of you without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. See, the first stone is the hardest stone to throw. By Jewish law, the two witnesses against the sinner were to be the first two stones thrown. So the the person who was supposed to throw the stone are the person who are her accusers. And these were the hardest stones to throw. Because the first stone means you take responsibility of the accusation yourself. I'm responsible for accusing this woman. You're taking responsibility for the rightness of your testimony. You're taking responsibility for the righteousness of your action and innocence upon yourself. That's what the first stone meant. I mean, after the first and the second stone is thrown, you just follow everyone else. It's easy. And now if you don't know how easy it is, if you marched at all during, after the Giants won the World Series, like, I would never throw a couch in a fire. (laughs) Until you do. Because everyone's doing it. Everyone is. If you have ever, did you ever, did you do it? Did you walk down the street? It's like people, just like one random person wouldn't do that by themselves. Just couch fire in the middle of of, a mission street. And you wouldn't do that. But when there's a hundred of us, takes the first person to throw in the couch. And then everyone else is, yeah, my couch too. Like everyone does that. (laughs) And you're throwing in all kinds of random stuff. There's this huge, like one person, it takes one person. And then everyone else after that, it's really easy. That's what this is saying. The first two stones are the hardest to throw. The first two stones are saying, I'm throwing this, and I, I, and I say that I accuse her. I take responsibility for this accusation, the rightness of my testimony, everything. And you throw it. And then everyone else, they just, we just throw it on. And who among them will presume the sinlessness Jesus required? Who among them can do that? Now, the question is not intended to avoid civil or criminal justice, because what judge or jury is sinless But Jesus' question wants to probe their motives. And that's the point here. Jesus wants to probe their hearts to show us that evil lies within us. Our sins lie within us. Jesus tests their motives and says, I will uphold the law and you can stone her, but the one who was pure in the intent of the law. If you are doing this because you have pure intent to preserve the law of God and this community, then throw the first stone. Rene Girard, who is a professor at Stanford University, has written that this story exposes the nature of humankind in our desire to scapegoat, to want to hang society's problems on one thing and then destroy that thing. He calls it satanic. He says that we, we all have these such women or such people, 
Every culture in the world has a certain people, whether it's sexually immoral or the poor or the LGBTQ community or the sick or the elderly or the Google bus. Seriously. That's the problem. That thing right there is the problem. And we do it in our society as well. We do it all the time. It's the poor. It's the homeless. It's this. It's that. That is the problem. And one day they'll turn to the Christians. The Christians are the problem. Everyone will look for a scapegoat. The church does this. Though society does this, we always look for that thing that we think is the problem and go after it to kill it and destroy it. It's not nuanced. There's no room for soul care. There's no wisdom involved. We say, that's the problem and it has to go. Stone it. Kill it. Crucify it. Jesus says, okay, the one among you who's without sin, throw the first stone. The one of you that is completely guiltless when it comes to this accusation. See, the biggest problem of religion is not recognizing the evil that lies in our own heart. It's not realizing that when we're saying it's you, we're actually saying it's also me. See, Jesus isn't saying that the law of Moses was wrong. Only that if we're going to take it serious, we should all find ourselves guilty of it as well. If we're going to take the law of God seriously, we have to all start with this. We're all guilty of breaking it. All of us are. And next, something happens that's absolutely remarkable. I've I've often pictured the sound of this. Of Jesus writing in the sand. The sound of that. And then him standing and saying, let he without sin cast forth. And then, and then the, first, the first thud of a rock hitting the ground. They just dropped their rocks. And then, and they were just all these thuds all over the ground. And then the shuffling of feet, walking out. There's the sound of all that. There's de- deafening silence and then, and then people walking. And then all of a sudden it's completely silent again. And Jesus said, Woman, where did they go? Where's everybody at? Is there no one here to condemn you? And she looks up, maybe for the first time, because her head, I would, I would not be standing in front of people being condemned looking at you in the eyes. My eyes would be looking at the ground the whole time. She probably looks up for the very first time, and she realizes that no one's there. She says, no one, sir, or the word there in Greek is Lord, by the way. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. This is, in, this is crazy to me. Jesus does not condemn her. Jesus has this woman in his hands with all her sin exposed. He knows everything about her. He has the power to crush her. He has the power to kill her. A lot of people find Jesus scary in the sense that if I bring all my stuff to him, I'm scared of what he might do. Can you just put yourself in the story for a second? knows every single thing about her, standing in front of an angry mob, makes them all go away some miraculous way, and it's only you and him, and he's like, I don't condemn you either. You don't condemn, like he has her in, he could crush her. I don't condemn you either. He doesn't condemn her. He upholds her. Remember John 3, 17? For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is not there to condemn this woman. He's there to save this woman. We are not here to condemn you. We're here that you might be saved in Christ. 
I don't know what you've heard in churches before. I don't know what your history, your pastors, or whatever you deal with. We're not here to condemn. We're here that you might be brought into life in Christ. He does not condemn her, but he does not condone her. He does not condemn her, but neither does he condone her. He says, neither do I condemn you. He declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus is so radically inclusive. Standing on behalf of the scapegoated and the marginalized is clearly seen in the Gospels. If there are scapegoated or marginalized people in our society, there's a good chance that you can say Jesus would be standing with them. But even more radical than Jesus' inclusivity is his radical invitation to transformation. This here is nuanced care for her soul and well-being. She doesn't need to be quickly stoned. She doesn't need to be quickly or simply acquitted either. She needs to be transformed. And this is where I think the breakdown comes in church. I know we argue about a lot of stuff. Here's the thing. Just let me be as honest as I can with you. Jesus desires to transform us. Period. Jesus wants to transform us. He wants to transform our lives. This is what she needs. She needs true life that's only found in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you will not find it in any other thing. Christ alone. This woman, like all of us, needed forgiveness. N.T. Wright comments on his commentary on this. It says, forgiveness is not the same, as, same thing as tolerance. Being forgiven doesn't mean that sin doesn't matter. On the contrary, forgiveness means that sin does matter, but that God is, coming to, is choosing to remove it. Do you remember that, um, you remember at the very beginning of John, uh, John the Baptist, who's a different John, sees Jesus and he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He makes that statement. Behold, the Lamb of God. In the Old Testament, the Lamb of God was the thing that they would confess their sins over and sacrifice it for purification. And John is saying that Lamb that gets us into access with God, that removes our sin, is that's who he is right there. And then the rest of the book, you can almost read it like this. Jesus is taking everyone's sin on himself. He's a Lamb that's walking through Judea, that's walking through Jerusalem and taking sickness and brokenness and disease and demon possessionness. I don't know if that's a thing. Um, and, uh, and sexual morality. He's taking all of these things upon himself. And as he's doing that, he's becoming like the woman. Because here's the thing. Why I think this, this pericope, this story fits at the beginning of John 8, why I think it's perfect here, is because John 8 starts with people in the temple courts trying to stone a woman. Chapter 8 ends like this. At this, they picked up stones to stone Jesus, but he hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. It starts with them trying to stone a woman and ends with them trying to stone him. What's the point? The point is this. The progression goes that Jesus is really the one they want to kill. Jesus, this is the way that John is telling the story. It's an unfolding narrative that Jesus is becoming the Lamb of God. He's like stepping in and like absorbing people's sins. He's stepping in and taking them on himself. He steps in when these people want to kill this woman for committing adultery. He steps right in the middle of them and absorbs it. By the end of the chapter, they will want to kill him and they will plot that way. 
with the woman at the well, he absorbs this. He keeps doing this throughout the gospel. We'll see that he does that with the blind man too. He absorbs brokenness. He absorbs all of this. So how does justice and mercy, how is this harmonized? It's harmonized by Jesus taking the woman's place, literally taking her place. That's the way John's telling the story, that Jesus stepped in and took this woman's place. They no longer want to kill her. They want to kill him. That's the point. That no longer does she die for her sins, but he dies for her sins. And not just her sins, but our sins as well. All who would come to him. He does not condemn. He frees. He transforms by his power. There's one thing I want to say before we close. And I think this is more the pastoral, maybe some pastoral unction going on here. You might be here this morning feeling like you are stuck in an impossible situation. Like impossible. Like you might even contemplated, have contemplated suicide, of leaving, of abandoning and everything. There's no way I can get out of this situation. If I go this way, I'm dead. If I go this way, my life's over. There's no way I can go. This woman was in an impossible situation and Jesus was in an impossible situation. And, the, and he, f- he made a way out. He made a way when there was no way. He like, he can come in and he brings life where there seems to be just death. He, came, he comes in and he, and he brings newness when you're like, I'm, it's so quick how this girl went from death to life. She was standing in front of people this close to dying and then she walked away free. He cleansed everyone that wanted to kill her and cleansed her and she's alone in the temple with Jesus. That's, that's like a reverse cleansing. That's like a, a woman coming in who's an adulteress and then all these religious leaders are just going, let's get rid of all the people that are impure and then all the religious leaders are gone. And only this woman and then he makes her pure and he goes, you can stay. Are you kidding? This is... And this isn't fairy tale. This isn't, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to do some pastor thing, like trying to get you to do something. I, this is real. Like Jesus does this. By the power of God, he makes dead things alive. He brings life where there is no life. He makes a way where there is no way. It takes this complete trust, though. I mean, do you trust yourself? And can you trust yourself to Christ? Let's pray. God, we thank you. I thank you, God. I know that you, Lord, make a way where there is no way. That you bring hope in hopeless situations. And Lord, I I, want to pray that we would trust you, that we would turn to you, that that our minds wouldn't get in the way. I want to pray for our minds, God. We tend to, I tend to overthink things so often. I pray there would be this sweet abandonment and trust in Christ today. To trust you, God. To do what we cannot do. To remove our hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. To remove our impurity and give us purity. To transform us, God. You have a way, Jesus, of upholding your truth, 
bringing your grace. Help us to live in that tension. In Jesus' name, amen.